scripture is read. Hear these words from Daniel chapter 7, 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions his head in his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked at the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand upon two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had a great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet. It was, a, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." And then hear these words from John's Revelation, chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon its horns and a blasphemous name upon its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was, ha and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone slays with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And by the signs which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast should even speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. The word of God for the children of God. You may be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, it's good to be with you all tonight. As Matt said, my name is Ben Davis. I am an elder, one of uh, 23 elders here at Eastminster, and it's very much a privilege to be with you tonight. Uh, about three, two or three months ago, I got an email randomly from Matt um, asking me if I wanted to sign up to help uh, oversee communion for a few services. And he said, also, if you'd like to preach, I'd love to have you. And he gave me three different texts that I could choose from. Um, this was the best option out of all three texts. So this is the one that I, this is the one that I chose. Um, I want to open tonight with a, with, a, with a parable, with a story that I hope brings some measure of illumination to this text and what I'm going to say. Typically when I preach, I have everything kind of manuscripted out, very much word for word, but I decided to take a little bit different approach tonight um, to be perhaps a little more off the cuff. Uh, we're going to do the questions and answers afterward, but I, I really would love this to be hopefully a little bit more relational uh, and, and, and comfortable time to move through a very difficult text, but I think also a very necessary and very important text that I hope to, uh, in a feeble way, shed some light on for you tonight. Let me open with a story. This is one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite parables from my favorite book, Brothers Karamazov, written by Dostoevsky. And in the fourth book of the Brothers Karamazov, he tells this very famous parable uh, known as the, the, the Grand Inquisitor, the parable of the Grand Inquisitor. And this, t- this is told, and this is a conversation being had by two brothers, Alyosha, who's a priest, a very humble man, and his kind of arrogant, puffed-up, atheistic brother, Ivan. And Ivan, to make a fool out of Alyosha, tells him this parable that starts with an inquisitor, The Inquisitor was symbolic of the Spanish Inquisition, which had these high churchly courts, which would bring people before trials for heresies and and law-breaking and all of these things, and the church accumulated all this power. And the Inquisitor is meant to represent the great power of the church. And the Inquisitor, we're never given a name beyond that, is standing there, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes down to earth and is standing before the Inquisitor. And they begin to have a conversation about what's been going on since Jesus has been, according to the Inquisitor, absent from the scene. And this is a big, long story that we don't have time to go into the details tonight, but there's a few salient points that I think are important, not only for Revelation 13, but just for all of us to consider in general. The Inquisitor lays charges 
against Christ. And he lays charges against Christ because he himself is being condemned. And his charges are this. He goes back to the temptations of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke specifically. And he said, Jesus, on three different occasions, you had a choice to make. You had a choice to make. In the first instance, when you had been exiled to the desert or taken to the desert, you were hungry, you were thirsty, and the evil one, Satan, came to you and offered you bread, nourishment. And instead of taking the bread, which would have been the best thing for you to do, you gave him a verse. Man shall not live by bread alone, but shall live wholly on the words of God. And then you were given a second choice where Satan took you to the pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down. All of this is yours. And Jesus said, cast yourself down and angels will come and rescue you. And Jesus denied him that, denied him the power of this miracle. And then he said, on the third time, the third time, The evil one, Satan, took you to a high mountain and said, look out here. All of the nations of the world will be yours if you will only bow down and worship me. And Jesus denied him that and said, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. And the inquisitor lays this charge against Jesus and said, if you had only gone the easy route so much misery and suffering of man would have been eased. If you would have been comfortable, if you would have sought miracles and and, and, and power and technology, if you would have been just given power, so many issues and problems would have been solved, but you didn't. Instead, you took the hard route and then you demanded of your followers to do the same. And the inquisitor tells Jesus, Things have been better here since you've been gone. We took the easy route. We took the bread. We advanced the kingdom on our own through our own power. We assumed our own might. And man's life is better as a result of it. We don't want you here anymore. And in this very kind of pregnant pause, Jesus walks up to the inquisitor does not say a word, but gently kisses him on the cheek and then turns around and walks away. I'm not going to spoil the rest for you. You can go and read this 800-page book for yourself. But it's a very interesting parable, and I've used it as an illustration in numerous times as I've taught and I've preached because I think it has so much to say to us today, and I think it sheds some light on this text as I hope to make clear in the next few minutes. But hold out this idea of what I want to call the the Dostoevsky temptation, the inquisitor temptation, about assuming power through our own means, the worship of ourselves and what we can do versus the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. I want to do two readings of this text, two readings of of, of 13. I want to do, the first reading will be what I'll call kind of an on-the-ground reading. It will be a reading that tries to bring out some of the more 
political or, or cultural symbols and things that, that John's hearers would have understood or that he's alluding to. It's important to get that straight insofar as we, as we can. But the second reading is going to be a little bit deeper. And the second reading is where I really want you to pay attention because I'm going to make some moves in the text in my interpretation that may be a little bit different than what you're expecting. So let's go first through, through this text. I read the Daniel passage first. I'm not going to go back through that, but hopefully you can begin to see the connection between what's going on in Daniel with the four beasts and what we see here at the beginning of chapter 13. Actually, let me just set this up here in, in a better way. Chapter 12 is about a war in heaven between the dragon, who is Satan, and the woman, who is Mary. And Michael conquers Satan and casts him to the earth. And, chapter, and verse 17 of chapter 12 says this, Then the dragon was angry with the woman because he could not conquer her and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear the testimony to Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So here we have the dragon, Satan, who's been cast down. And the dragon hands over authority to the first beast, the land beast. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems upon its horns and a blasphemous name upon its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet was like a bear and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave its power and his throne and great authority. In Daniel, the four beasts represent four different empires. Four different empires. And those empires were known throughout, certainly Israel and, and the known Mediterranean world. And they represent the enemies of God's people, the enemies of God's covenant people, Israel. What John does here is he takes all four beasts in Daniel and combines them into one beast, the land beast. And many people think that in doing this, John is not only making an allusion to Daniel, but is saying that Rome, and this letter is written in the context of the Roman Empire, that Rome is the culmination, the ultimate culmination of not only empire, but power and authority. The ten horns represent power, the, etern the power of Rome, the Pax Romana, that was known all throughout, not only the Mediterranean world, but beyond. Up until that time in, in human history, no person or civilization, at least in the West, had seen a power like Rome. And so John takes the culmination of that and representative of Daniel and says it's representative of one beast who's the, who's the, the apex of this political power. And Satan hands the authority over to this political power. And then verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? There's all kinds of speculation from scholars and historians about the beast with the mortal wound. Was it Nero? Was it another emperor? 
Was it Rome itself who had been wounded in various wars and battles but seemed to always come back and recover? Nobody's been able to specifically pinpoint who it's referring to. But I think in the general sense of what John's doing here, showing that a power, whether it's Rome or an emperor or all of it together, has in some way been wounded mortally in a very significant way, yet continues on, yet persists in power, yet persists in, do, in casting judgment and persecuting God's people. And as a result of this, continues to garner worship, perhaps even more worship, because in other societies who may have been conquered, suffered mortal wounds, but never healed, Rome or the emperor of Rome was healed. Therefore, something must be going on larger, worthy of our worship and emulation. And what John is saying is that this power, this accumulated political power authority, what lies behind it is ultimately the dragon, the evil one. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Who is like Rome? Who can fight against Rome? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was given, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it, given it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation and all who dwell on the earth worship it. So here we have the political power of Rome. But John is giving us not even a balance, but a greater authority in the sovereignty of God. As great as Rome was, at that time as great as Rome is, this almost supernatural authority who even though is wounded can overcome who utters blasphemies against the one true God because of its own imperial divine system, its own Roman cult. All of these horrible practices, pagan practices and evil that Rome not only inflicts on its own people, but on the peoples of the earth fly in the face of God. But ultimately, John says, Rome is only allowed to do this for a certain time. The beast is only allowed to do this for a certain time, determined by God. So the people who think Rome is the ultimate authority, actually it's God who sets the limits. God who sets the limits. This is probably, I don't know what the, what the, 42, what the 42 number means. There are all kinds of speculation of what it could mean or what the time frame is. I do think it's an illusion though, going back into Daniel... Where Daniel has a vision and the angel comes to Daniel and says, Israel is going to be in exile for a set time. Israel is going to be in exile for a set time. And it's actually an expansion of time upon time that was originally given to the prophet Jeremiah. And the angel tells Daniel, actually, the exile will last far longer, far longer than in Jeremiah. So God alone determines the time of the nations, both for his own nation of the people of Israel and for the ultimate power of Rome. But then here in 8, verse 8, 
and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. So God's faithful people are not going to fall into this trap. They are the ones who are holding fast, who are enduring in a time of great trial. And not just trial from persecution. The temptations that anyone would feel when the whole culture seems to be falling forward in a certain direction. And just the pressure that you would feel to participate in that. But these who have been, whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life since the foundation of the world, they are enduring. They are enduring. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone slays with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. I'm going I'm to look at this very briefly in the second reading, so I'm going to pass over that. But let's go to verse, verse 11. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It works great signs and even makes fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And by the signs which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast should never speak, and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This is most likely an allusion to the Roman imperial cult. The Roman imperial cult. Going all the way back to Caesar Augustus, forward to the time of Nero, and then Domitian, who was reigning over Rome when this letter was written, Roman emperors either considered themselves to be divine or after their death were considered to be divine. And everywhere they went, not just in Rome, but all of the territories where they conquered, some of the first things they would do is implant an image of the emperor and then establish a cult to the emperor for worship. The Romans did not care what religion the religion of the people they conquered. They could keep that religion. That was completely fine. As long as they paid tribute to Caesar as God, paid their taxes, participated in the cult, they could have whatever gods they wanted. So this, this system of, of, of religion, this system of pagan practice, undergirding and supporting the beast of the Roman Empire. It was the conduit, the funnel through which Rome has received its power on the ground with the people. And because of this, it wasn't just religion. We think of religion today as a very separate thing of our lives. You come here to church, and then you leave church. And church may be very different than your work, your economic activity, your entertainment, all of these things. We can live very fragmented, separated lives. That was not the way it worked in Rome in Rome, religion, government, politics, entertainment, culture, all of it was wrapped up into one. And so if you refuse to participate in the systems that were, you found yourself in, in the Roman Empire, then you had exiled yourself. 
You could not fully participate in the market, either buying or selling goods. If you refused Caesar his lordship, if you would not pledge your allegiance to him, then you were removed from the system. You were not a full participant or citizen. Verse 17, no, excuse me, verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. 666. Again, all kinds of interpretation. But I think it's very safe to say, based off of the work that's been done on this number, that this is an allusion to Nero. If you were here last week or you heard Matt's sermon from last week, he did an excellent job ta- talking about um, this very ancient idea that was, that was very prevalent both in, in Israel and Hebrew with the rabbis and then also in Rome of what's called gematria. And gematria was a way of assigning a numerical, uh, a numerical, a number to a letter. And this happened in Greek and in Hebrew. There are 22 consonants in the Hebrew in the Hebrew. Uh, language. They all were assigned a letter. The same was, was true in Greek. And work has been done on this passage to show that 666 most likely aligns with a particular number. Each six aligns to a number that equals Nero or equals an emperor like Nero standing behind it. So 666 is Nero, is this emperor and the cult that assumes his lordship in which you must participate, in which you must worship in order to be fully taken care of within the Roman system. So this is an on-the-ground reading that John's hearers would have heard. Let me very quickly give a second reading of this that I think is a little bit deeper of what this, what this represents. I think that the dragon and the, and the land beast and the water beast is an inversion of the Holy Trinity. We could call this the unholy trinity. The dragon, Satan, is meant to be a parody of God the Father. The ultimate source of power and life. The dragon is the ultimate source of death and destruction. The first beast, the land beast, is an inversion of the incarnate Messiah. This beast receives its its power, its identity from the dragon and is co-worshipped with the dragon. The mortal wound that is healed is a parody, an inversion of of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. Those who worship, those who fall down, those who who utter these blasphemous words are paying tribute to the unholy Messiah rather than Jesus, the true Messiah, who was not only wounded, but was killed and risen again. 
to the Father and the Son of this unholy trinity. And and authority was given over to every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Do you remember in John 12 when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, all people will worship me. This is an inversion to that passage. And then the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. The lamb slain since the foundation of the world. This is a very tight, a very dense Trinitarian statement. How is it Trinitarian? Because God the Father, in his freedom and in his love for us, chose since the foundation, since before the foundation of the world, to reveal himself in the crucified Messiah of Jesus Christ. And the only reason John is writing about this is because that crucified Messiah who reveals the Father has risen again by the work of the Holy Spirit. So this one line in the middle of this parody of the triune God, John gives us this lamb slain since the foundation of the world in whose name these people have been written, in whose book these people have been, their names have been written. This is the God who truly reveals himself as triune in Jesus on the cross, slain for us. If anyone has been taken captive, verse 9, to captivity he goes, if anyone slays with the sword, with the sword must be slain. You remember the lex talionis? The eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth? That's what this is. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. If anyone is taken into captivity, if you want to exercise power to to, to take captive those, if you want to live by the sword, you will be taken captive. You will be slain by the sword. This is not the way of God's chosen people. This is not their character. They are revealed in their patient endurance as they participate in the suffering of the lamb who was slain since the foundation of the world. This is how they're known. This is how they witness in the Roman Empire. And then the third, the land beast. Who does all of these miraculous signs. Who makes the first beast in its presence. Makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Whose mortal wound was healed. And it works great signs. Even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. This is a parody of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, fire comes down from heaven and unites and births the church. This beast, fire comes down and spreads chaos and death and false idolatrous worship. False idolatrous worship. 666, yes, I think it's a representation of Nero or just the the apex of the Roman Caesar cult. But in Hebrew, seven is the number, not only of perfection, but of fullness. Six, one less, is is incomplete. Triple six is radically incomplete. Radically incomplete. And as I draw this to a close, I want to draw a contrast between the 666 
and Matthew's genealogy. I won't read it here, but I encourage you to go back and look. But in Matthew's genealogy, Jesus, who is the son of David, is given a lineage. There are three sections, three periods in history. And in each period, there are 14 generations. Going back to the gematria, going back to the, to the, to the, the numbers that are assigned to the letters, 22 consonants in Hebrew. David, the, his numerical value is 464 in Hebrew. 464. No, excuse me, that's not true. Yeah, yeah, 464. 464 in Hebrew. And so what that does is the numerical value spells out the name of David, which in English is D-V-D. And it repeats that three times for each one of the periods. So Matthew uses this hidden code to not only say it explicitly that Jesus is the son of David, he spells it out in Jesus' own genealogy to say, that this Davidic king who you've been longing and waiting for to unite Israel for God to make good on his promises is arriving in the flesh of this Nazarite to come and rescue you. To come and rescue you. And so the 666 of radical incompleteness, of, 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 of radical uh, disparity is an inversion of the 777, the fullness of, of God in Christ for us. For us. And so it's interesting to go through all of this passage and to understand what was going on at the time and what John's original hearers would have heard. But I ask you, what do you hear in this text? What do you hear? Who is the false trinity that perhaps you're worshiping? Who are, what are the powers and the principalities that you've allowed yourself to fall into? Going back to Dostoevsky's parable of the Grand Inquisitor, Jesus, we want comfort. We want miraculous signs, which in this day and age could be, we want greater technology and medicine, greater things that can advance and erase human suffering. We can save ourselves if we're just smart enough. But ultimately we want power. We want more power. Those three things can be represented here as false gods. False trinities that we begin to participate in. And over time, we're changed into their likeness, into their image. And so I titled this sermon... Which trinity, who's Mark? Which trinity are you worshiping? Which trinity are you participating in? The one that has been revealed in the lamb who was slain since the foundation of the world? Or the one who utters blasphemies of God's name? Whose mark is on you? Are you chasing after gods that will only leave you short because they themselves are incomplete and ultimately powerless? Or is the mark of the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel, 
the Son of God and second person of the Trinity, is that mark been implanted on you through the Holy Spirit? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Ben, for sharing and preparing that for us. That was great. That numerology at the end, the 777 inverse gave me chills. That was cool. Um, we've got some questions here that I'm glad you're answering and not me. Um, we'll start, I'll, I'll just have, we'll take about five, seven minutes here. I'll, I'll start with one. And this, there are no bad questions here. I'll, I'll start with this. Forgive my left behind question is the preface. Okay. But do we need to be weary are wary of a mark of the beast today, a nanochip or even a tattoo of sorts? Um, that's not the way I read and understand Revelation. Perhaps. Um, I don't see that in this text. I do think, as hopefully the point that I made at the end was clear, that anytime we're worshiping false gods, we, it, they're going to leave a mark on us. They're going to leave a mark on us. And they inevitably will lead to our own dehumanization. Whether or not that's going to be defined as a certain microchip or something like that, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it could be, but that's, that's not immediately what I see in this text. In relation to that a bit, uh, one of the questions was, do we continue to see the beast in action today as in, is the dragon continue to raise new beasts, or is it the same beast in a new guise? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think the, the, the beast of, of radical political power is real. Uh, and the beast does use political power and, and you know, nations as we think of them today, which would be very different than how they conceived of them, but, but these powers and these people for its own purposes to wield destruction on, on the earth. Um, and so I'm not going to name how or where the instances necessarily that happens. I mean, I think, you know, Hitler's a pretty, just an obvious answer. It's, it's kind of the go-to. It's the easy one. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But then I also think that the beast or the beasts, uh, the dragon is using all kinds of things. Um, as I mentioned from Dostoevsky, I mean, I think one of them is, is just an idea of comfort comfort, this idea that we can in many ways solve our own problems or save ourselves if we can just acquire enough information and education. Um, if we can, you know, build the biggest rockets and have the greatest medical technology, we can completely change who we are as human, as human beings, so we think. Um, and I think that those are all, those, I think in many ways, the beasts lay behind that. What I would, just if I could say this one second, this require, this calls for wisdom. That's the verse, if you got anything when we're talking about beasts and marks, that's the verse to bank on. This requires wisdom. John doesn't just come out and say explicitly this who it is. You have to discern it. But he's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a people, a church, churches. So that's our responsibility as praying people to discern what are, who are the beasts of our age and how do we resist them not through the ways that the world has given us, but through the way of the slain lamb. Good answer. Um, okay, I'm going to give you a really specific question and then a sort of bigger idea question to close. So 
one of the questions was, what do the diadems mean in the context of the little horn? Yep. So the diadems are they're, they're, they're crowns, so they represent kingly power. Um, the little horn in in uh, uh, in Daniel would have been um, would have been uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who kind of rose up and, and conquered over his brothers um, for the dynasty and that whole thing. So that's kind of the historical deal. Um, John again combines the diadems into all of one beast. So I mean, it's it's the power of the power of the power. I mean, so it's not just individual. It's Rome and the Roman Caesar cult represents the the greatest power, at least at John times, that the world has ever known. And all of that is brought together in 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 one one symbolic beast. You just know stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> Loved it. Um, okay, big question. So. You're not going to be able to maybe answer this entirety question of theodicy, but the question was, why does God allow the dragon in parentheses or oppressive empires like Rome to rule at all? Oh, my. Um, oh, boy. Um, Leave you with a good one. Yeah. Oh, geez. There, there, okay, I'll just, I'll just say this. There's, there's, not, there's, not, there's not one right answer to this. There's not even one answer to this. There are aspects of various answers to give. So I, I'm going to give an answer that's maybe going to sound a little Sunday schooly, but I, I do genuinely believe it. Um, because I think, we see it in, I think we see it in Scripture, particularly with somebody like Osiris in, in Isaiah. Uh, I, I believe that, that these principalities and powers are... To a, to a degree ordained by God, this is Romans 13, because God abhors chaos and they bring a sense of order, could also bring a sense of terror, but a sense of order. But I think these are the things, God works in and through them for his own glory. And, and that's, that isn't always easy to see. Um, but rules over them and allows them to be, and shifts them around like, chess pieces on a playing board. I mean, just go read Psalm 2 um, for his own glory and his own purposes. I think to understand that fully isn't to just jump in the middle of it and say, God, what are you doing here? It's always to consider the end, which this book gives us, which is all of the nations, all of creation, in fact, standing before the throne of God as he is king and ruler. And so all of the peoples and the civilizations and the places and the events of history in God's own wisdom and divine sovereignty are in their own way. He's bringing them all to his desired end to see creation restored. And as one author put it, regained. Mm. And we may not always see that. I'm sure there have been Christians that waited their entire lives to try to understand God or what are you doing in this moment, who at that end time, it will be revealed to them that they died and never saw it or didn't know it. Yeah. But I think this is a, the idea of the patient endurance of the people, that we don't understand what God is doing in and among the nations, but we know that he ultimately is the authority who rules over them. He's the one who sets the boundaries and the time for the beast. They don't do it themselves. And that all of these things will be revealed to us or given to us or make sense in some way at the end when God is, is all in all and Christ hands the kingdom over, over to the Father. Um, and so always trying to discern those instances by the end and knowing presently that God is here. And I think at the end of the day too, this is why we have the church. 
God's people in place, in time, patiently waiting, discerning, enduring together, worshiping ultimately together, calling each other to greater humanness in Christ, to be, as Leslie Newbigin said, a hermeneutic of the gospel for the culture and the people of, of, of the day. And so Augustine said, you are what you worship and you're, uh, you, you are what you worship and you worship what you love. And so the church helps us order our loves rightly to show the world what love is, how to love, and ultimately who to love. Boom. Thanks, Ben. Let's give him a round of applause for doing that. I appreciate you being our guinea pig as we have a little <laughs> back and forth dialogue. We're going to transition uh, into a time of communion. Ben's going to lead us in that. I'm going to pray for us and we'll, we'll continue in worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, um, for Ben and, and his mind and his hours of study that takes to, to be able to share um, and rattle off answers to hard questions. I thank you that we're able to wrestle with this text in community with one another, that we are in, in sometimes asking the questions and, and saying we don't know the answers. We don't exactly know what some of the numbers and, and symbolism is, but we want to be faithful and ask hard questions and interpret this together as a body. So Holy Spirit, continue to guide us in that process, and we thank you for your word. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.